the patient must come first. And I'm not sure that it gets through, but they've heard it enough so they know what it takes as far as being a good doc. It's hard work. At 3 a.m. in the morning when I have my big MI, I want a son of a gun that will not give up. Hi, everybody. David Schwab back with you on Beyond High Street. I tell you, every one of these conversations we have from Miamians, alumni from school, uh, excite me. I learned from this one, take that times 10. A conversation with Jim Burtz, Dr. Jim Burtz. Graduated Miami 62 years ago from a small town of 3,000 people in Ohio. His dad didn't get past the sixth grade. His dad worked in the coal mines for 52 years. And they picked Miami, or really his dad picked Miami for him. He was going to go play football for one of the cradle of coaches, one of the legends, Ara. Unbelievable. Uh, His storytelling and his accuracy of names, uh, something we could all appreciate. Uh, And we talk about certain classes, zoology, organic history, Professor Harrison and James and Smith. We go in so many different directions, even his history professor that hooked him up with the CIA. And he had two meetings on campus in Oxford as a student uh, and, and almost went that direction to his girlfriend at the time, now wife, said, no chance you're going to become a dentist. But talk about a, uh, a why or a fork in the road. That's unbelievable. And all the different life lessons along the way, starting as a boy, becoming a man, putting the patient first, which he learned first in dentistry and then a doctor over his career, having a second father figure, but someone that isn't necessarily someone who is related to you. Just the talk there about mentorship. But I was really excited to talk to Jim because he received a Bishop Medal at Miami 10 years ago for his lifelong humanitarian efforts. And as a doctor, 80 plus missions, 4,000 plus surgeries all over the world to help people out. He's actually going to Cambodia and the Philippines uh, in 2019 uh, to continue to help. We went from the CIA back in the 1950s to a chance encounter with bin Laden in a Greek restaurant in 1986 in Pakistan where he had been asked by the U.S. government to go over and perform surgeries in Pakistan during the Russian invasion. Like I said, the the storytelling and the conversations are incredible. Uh, The statement that I loved the most that he said that he first thought was from Sister Teresa, but actually came from someone else. You haven't lived until you have done something for somebody that cannot repay you. You haven't lived until you have done something for somebody that cannot repay you. How about the humility of that? Incredible. We start the conversation about why Miami in 1952. Well, I went there on a football scholarship uh, because there was a guy who graduated from Miami by the name of Ray Mears, who ended up coaching the Tennessee Volunteers. And as he beat Adolf Rupp more than Adolf Rupp beat him. And <laughs> and he played on the era was the last three lettermen at Miami. And so he played on that basketball team with Ray Mears when he was at Miami. Another guy there was an All-American by the name of Bob Brown. And uh, a guy who played center on our high school football team, Chuck Hazelrig, ended up going there. He was a year ahead of me, a bright guy, a 5'8", and uh, 
So that was uh, a guy by the name of Sam Weston. I we had the uh, undefeated football team, and so Eric came to uh, uh, our house with Doc Eric, and uh, he told my dad I was going to go to Wake Forest and play there. And my dad, after Eric came, my dad was an autocrat, and he. He told me, you're not going to Wake Forest, you're going to Miami, because <laughs> Era told him, he said, you send that boy to me, and I'll send you home a man, and uh, that's what my dad wanted more than anything else, was that, and, and so that's how I ended up going to Miami. And where, where, where in high school? Was that in Ohio, or where were you? Yeah, in Ohio, yeah, southeastern Ohio, around Steubenville, it's a little coal mining town just 25 miles east of uh, or west of the Ohio River and it's called Caddis C-A-D-I-Z and uh, Clark Gable and uh, General Custer were the other uh, two famous people that came from there besides Chuck Hazelrig no just joking but uh, (laughs) and did you (laughs) did you end up playing all four years at Miami no, because I had a concussion, and I wasn't. I only played on the third team. I was never a starter or anything like that. So I played two years, and uh, I decided I was in education at that time, and uh, I knew I didn't want to do that. I thought I wanted to be a football coach, but then after I didn't play, uh, I, I just wasn't good enough, and, uh, uh, you know. Uh, what 10% every level you go through make it and um, do something in the athletics and so I had uh, weaned out uh, at that time so I uh, I got my butt together and um, I went to dental school so I was in pre-dent and uh, I went to dental school and then I went to medical school after that so that's uh I ran into a botany professor by the name of Stanfield, and he had a talk with me. He said, son, you better get your butt in gear, because I thought I was an athlete, but I really wasn't. And so he had a a come-to-Jesus meeting with me. (laughs) (laughs) And tell me me about Oxford in... 1952 to 1956 just for for the i for for those listening to and the world of technology you know yeah. what what were you everything was handwritten i guess maybe typewriters what what was the technology everything of was hand, hand, handwritten at that time blue book examination was uh, the cry at that time and uh, so you had to have good penmanship uh and I, I had taken typing in high school, but I never used it. And uh, so I was happy that uh, blue book examinations were uh, the most of the exam. Uh, it was not true, false, or multiple choice. It was uh, writing and essay writing and. Uh, I got my comeuppance uh, because a lot of people from Chicago were much better trained for uh, university or college studies at that time than the, this town that I came from was 3,000 people. And we had 
uh, a couple teachers uh, that tried to get you ready, but uh, they were fighting an uphill battle in that little town. And so uh, it was a difficult adjustment uh, when I uh, I first went there. And in the, the that last semester, my freshman year, I, I finally started getting the idea that you what you had to do to achieve a credible uh, grade point average uh, at Miami. Uh, I stayed at Fisher Hall, uh, that, and so you had to walk a long distance. Reed and Sims Hall were there, mm-hmm. and on the corner was the football stadium. Mm. And yeah, right there where Pearson Hall is now, uh, and uh, uh, so that was the football stadium. So it was a long walk to uh, uh, class. Most of them were in Harrison Hall, mm-hmm. or uh, Upham was new at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there was another one I can't remember. Uh, it's funny the you, if you look at students now coming back and everyone talking about the Upham Arches and and kissing your bride to be in the Upham Arches. And interesting yeah. to hear that when you're there, that's a that's a new building. Um, And I imagine the library had a different meaning in the 50s to now. Now, uh, you probably go to the library for a a quiet place to study because you don't don't need any of the literature there. You have all that on your phone. Back then, that was maybe the sole place for you to find to learn. That's exactly right. And uh, the Redskin Reservation was an old U.S. Army uh, thing right there at the corner of Upham uh, Hall, uh, where the uh, uh, Routabush Hall is, you know, where mm-hmm. the uh, president has his office and everything. And what so, a, did you did you when you when you got out of school and you after the botany professor kicked your button gear and you went yeah. d- dental and then doctor type work? Was there yeah. a what else do you remember from either professors or teachings that uh, carried on uh, really through your life? Either a, yeah. a particular thing in a class or just even discipline yeah. or way of thinking? Harrison was, uh, Dr. Harrison was a professor in the zoology department. He cut comparative anatomy, and I, he was an excellent teacher. Uh, yeah, I'd finally got my butt in gear uh, with uh, knowing that you had to study and put out and not just go take a test and do okay on it like you would in high school. Uh, and uh, there was a guy by the name of Floyd James who uh, uh, taught organic chemistry, and that was the make-or-break uh, uh people and he took a liking to me for some reason it was more intimate back then uh, because you were in a small room not in an amphitheater where they uh, lectured to you know a couple hundred students there may be 30 students in a in a class and he and he was an excellent teacher there was a guy by the name of gran g-r-a-n who uh taught uh, 
Phys, uh, yeah, physics and, uh, you know, hydraulics, uh, electricity and all that. And he was a hard person. But I don't, we ended up being friends also after that. Uh, and so the, those were the, and another guy by the name of Smith, who was a uh, history professor and head of the graduate or dean of the graduate school. And I took uh, uh, world relations uh, from him my senior year. And he tried to get me to join the CIA because <laughs> I had an interview with him. Uh, and uh, I could speak some German and Hungarian. I'm half Hungarian and half German. And he liked that. And so uh, I had an interview and with the two guys from the CIA uh, behind, uh, oh, there was another army, you know, barracks type thing that where we met and talked for a while. And uh, that but, that that may be the last time the CIA was on Miami's campus. <laughs> could have. Well, I, I doubt that. But, yeah, that's uh, right. They're probably yeah, doing yeah, those interviews. There, with you don't know. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah. but. Yeah, talk talk through that. That's fascinating. Um, and so the conversation. Tell me, I guess, what you can or what that conversation was like. Well, and- they wanted they checked me out through their background, and uh, they were interested because I still have relatives in Hungary, and uh, uh, so uh, you know that was uh, the Hungarian Revolution was in 1956. And that was the year they interviewed me. And they knew something was going to happen, I think, uh, at that time. And so I had two interviews with them. And Smith really pushed me to go ahead and do that. But I'd met my wife, and uh, she didn't want to hear about that. <laughs> and <laughs> I was going to go to – I was accepted at dental school – in the dental school at Ohio State. And uh, – so that just went by the wayside, but uh, you had to go. In. You know, they were they checked you out and had you know gone to my hometown and talked to people and things. The FBI had, I meant, not them. But uh, so I was thinking heavily about that, and uh, uh, but of course uh, I didn't do it, and so th- that was the end of that. Uh, uh, era as far as being a member of the CIA. <laughs> well, everyone has uh, forks in the road and paths to choose. Very few, I would say, have the choice between the CIA and being a doctor or a dentist. So uh, uh, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Yogi said you, you, get, you go to a wine, you take one of them. And so that's what I did. <laughs> and then uh, from there on was life was the dental practice and doctor work really from, I guess, 1956 now, 60 plus years later, right? That's right. I, uh, I, I ended up going to Dallas, Texas uh, the year that Kennedy got killed in the emergency room or, you know, he came to the emergency room. So, uh, I was at John Peter Smith in uh, in, uh, Fort Worth, uh, that day. And 
the guy that put the chest tube in John Connolly that day ended up being a lifelong friend. And I'm looking at a picture of him right now in my office. Uh, he died two years ago, but his he was one of the people, you know, you, I think you get more than one father in your life. And most of the time it's not a relative, but it's someone else that you run into that kind of takes you under their wing and everything. So there was a... Parkland came onto the scene, uh, national scene, after uh, the Kennedy assassination. And so if you were trained at Parkland, everyone stands in awe of you because of its reputation. And so I was lucky enough to go there uh, and train in uh, maxillofacial surgery. And then after that, I go to Europe for a year and a half, and then I come back and go to medical school. I'd been, I'd gotten a master's degree in anatomy while I was in dental school uh, by doing some research work on bone healing, and uh, then I went to medical school at Baylor in Houston, and then I did a couple of years of general surgery and head and neck at MD Anderson, which is a big cancer hospital there and then I was going to go and be a teacher at Jackson Mississippi but that fell through so this guy Red Duke said he was a professor in the surgery department at Houston he said you're going to stay here <laughs> and so that's how I ended up I became an associate dean of the medical school six months after I started because of a quirk and then I went to Austin and worked in the chancellor's office down there for a couple of years. And then I came back to Houston because they asked me to go back and be a dean for clinical affairs of the medical school, which was a fairly new medical school. It was probably 15 years old at the time. And that's how I ended up staying in Houston. Incredible. And then it, in, in the past decade, Miami uh, awarded you the Bishop Medal um, yes. in recognition for humanitarian service. And I know right. uh, through the years you have helped thousands of children um, yeah. domestically, but also in Central America and afar. What, I guess what does the, the medal mean for Miami, but also the experience with children um, and your time afar? Right. Yeah. Well, I've been on 80 mission trips in my life. So uh, I usually do two or three a year. Uh, like I'm going to Cambodia and uh, <coughs> the Philippines uh, this end of this year and the beginning of next year. And so I've been to Ukraine. I've been to China and Cambodia, the Philippines, uh, Probably, uh, I worked in Afghanistan, or Duke had started a medical school in a place called Jalalabad, in, which is halfway between Cabo and the Khyber Pass. And uh, I became uh, the um, civilian consultant to the Surgeon General of the Air Force because of my work in Texas. And... Uh, 
when I finished that, I get a phone call from uh, this guy and said, we need uh, your help. And uh, so oh, I said, okay, what is it? He said, we want you to put together a group of people that will go to Peshawar, Pakistan, and operate on the Mujahideen that we bring across the border. This was, of course, during the Russian invasion. And there is a hospital there called the Afghan Surgical Hospital. And the first day that uh, two guys and I walk into the chief of surgery's office there, his name is Rabani. And there were four and a half million Afghanistan people in an area about 100 by 100 miles there. There were 497 or something like that tent camps there. Hmm. And uh, the people that make it, if they get hit in the chest or the belly, they usually don't make it because to smuggle them across with the Russians looking at them and everything is very... uh, uh, it's slow work getting them there. And so the people that got hit in the head, face, extremities live. If you get hit in the chest or the belly, you don't make it. Hmm. So they needed orthopedics and uh, and my specialty. Uh, so we went there and started working on these people. And I have a, a huge map in my office that I'm looking at right now that is Afghanistan and silhouetted on it is uh, Mujahideen stabbing a Russian cobra because the tongue is sticking out and it, it has a hammer and sickle on it, but blood is dripping down. And it was on the wall of the entrance of the hospital when you walk in. So I said to Rabani, can you get me a copy of that? <laughs> And what he did was uh, he sent it, he took it off the wall, folded it up, and sent it to me after I got back home. And so I've got it framed in the, in the office, and uh, I only show that to certain people because they, they won't believe it. But there it is. And uh, that's, that's incredible. And while you were over there in, in the Pakistan area, any other chance meetings or unique conversations or surgeries you did that are uh, lifelong in, in just remembering what you've done? Yeah, sure. I saw uh, Ben Laden one night. He was our son of a gun then. And it was the first day that we had given them the Stinger missile. And they shot down, and I, they showed us videotapes uh, the first MIG that they shot down because the guy fired it too soon. But the missile was a heat-seeking thing, and it turned around and went right up the pipe of this MIG because they were killing uh, Mujahideen like crazy, uh, but they didn't kill enough of them. And so we had that hospital had 450 beds in it, and every bed was filled every day. So when you were there, you were working. And, and what? So what year are we talking? Nineteen eighty-six and eighty-seven. 
And the and the meeting or seeing Bin Laden uh, was in 1986. It was in July of 1986. And, and I didn't yeah. I didn't meet him. We were in a restaurant in the Shia district of Peshawar. We weren't supposed to be there, but they had a Greek restaurant that had good food. <laughs> and he he came in with about ten other guys, and they sat at a big round table in the. He sat like Billy the Kid with his back in the corner. And uh, they all had Kalashnikovs and uh, uh, bandoleros around their neck. It was a war zone. And uh, he was tall. That's the reason why he stood out. He was about 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, something like that. He was Sudanese. And uh, that's uh, how you knew who he was. And everyone was talking about and pointing at him when he sat down. Ah, it's incredible. And and so we, we, we kind of, I mean, that story is, is fascinating. But keep, keep going on a little bit more of your time, I think, in Ecuador and Nicaragua and these 80 yeah. missions and helping children as yeah. it seems like a lifelong um, interest of yours and desire to help communities. Yeah. Uh, I read something one time that Sister Teresa said, and it ends up, but I thought she thought it up, but then I find out that the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress really said it first, but I spent time in India, uh, too, and the saying is, you haven't lived until you've done something for someone who can never pay you back. Mm. And I I got an award from our uh, uh, National Association uh, a couple of years ago for the same reason at Miami. And uh, I, I said that in there, and that's when I found out from someone who came up to me after I said that. And uh, it... Uh, he, he told me, you go look that up, and sure enough, this guy said essentially the same thing. She phrased it a little bit different, but uh, I'll never forget that. And I wrote uh, in my message when I got that award, well, tears are more, uh, when you see a, a mother or one, I remember uh, a grandmother whose grandson she brought to us in, we operated on her, him, and uh, she she convulsed just sobbing after she saw the kid. It was probably the best cleft lip repair I've ever done in my life, and I've done uh, over 3,000 of them. So, uh, uh, and I can still see that woman, and I've got those pictures that I look at, and you know, and yet, when I look at the lip, it, it's so good in my mind, but it's still not perfect. And so, you know, I've never done the perfect operation, never, and probably never will, but that's what you strive for. Well, you can you can hear the humility in, in your voice and tone when you, when you say that. So what do you tell, and that <laughs> that quote is one to, for all of us to um, try to achieve. What do you, what do you tell the, 18-year-old kid who's just walked onto the Oxford campus for the very first time 
about what the next four years, 20 years, 60 years of their life will be, and maybe some tips to um, give them the best chance to thrive uh, and succeed in life personally and professionally. The patient always comes first. And you cheat on your family. And my wife has chewed my butt many a time. I said, what was I to do? Walk away and tell them to get somebody else? No, because I can do it as well as anybody else. And so uh, I think uh, there was a guy who was a chief of surgery at Parkland by the name of Ben Wilson. He was a wrestler at Indiana. And he won the Balfour Award for wrestling, which is the Heisman in wrestling. And this guy told us, you always put the patient first. You sacrifice everything. Now, that doesn't go over very good these days, but back then it did mean something. And hopefully... Medical students, I preach that to a lot of them about, no, you do what's at hand, and that's the patient. And so you do, you sacrifice everything for that one individual patient. So that was a, kind of the modus operandi that uh, was imbued in you by those teachers. Another guy by the name of Bob Walker was exactly the same way. I don't care what you get paid. You take care of that patient. And, and so, yeah, and, and when you and when you go back to Miami, and the last time you were on uh, the campus, what? Give me one thing. I mean, a lot of it, I'm sure, looks the same with the red brick. Uh, yeah. But what what's the one thing besides the computers and the technology that you you laugh at and say, "Oh my gosh, I wish I had this," or yeah, yeah. or man, these students don't know what it was like. Give me that one other thing back from the 1950s to now that is just mind blowing difference on campus. Well, that's probably it. The technology that's now available, you know, you don't have to go to a library and cross-reference everything and go look it up firsthand. You put it in the computer and it's there. And so (coughs) they are much smarter than I was at that stage. I'm on the board of directors of the Mallory uh, Weiss institute there so i'm supposed to go back there at the end of this uh next month uh and i will go back but uh we speak to all the pre-med i every year i've gone back and given a lecture to them and what i try to to imbibe is that particular thing the patient must come first and i'm not sure that it's gets through, but they've heard it enough, so they know what it takes as far as being a good doc. It's hard work. At 3 a.m. in the morning, when I have my big MI, I want a son of a gun that will not give up. And that is easy sometimes when you know they're not going to make it. But uh, I've just 
talked about that incessantly about never give up. And I was dean for students in academic affairs, and I always looked for people that had excelled in something like being an Eagle Scout, like being an athlete. The last thing you want to do at 7 p.m. at night after football practice is to study. But that's where you build up that intense desire to do the right thing and take care of people the way they should be. I hope you enjoyed and learned as much in that 20 minutes, 25 minutes with Jim as I did. To give you an idea of the type of person man Jim is, when we finished the conversation, he asked for my address so he could write me a hand letter. I wanted to do that to him. He's the one who asked me. He also said he looked forward to the time when we meet in person so he could shake my hand. That's what I should have been saying to him. Just shows you the type of person he is. Proud to call him now a colleague. Proud to call him a fellow Miami alum with me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope everyone has a great day. Hope to see you all at Skippers. Take care.